0: I'm Rashma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect. On this podcast, I talk with up-and-coming changemakers who are leaving their fear of failure behind and letting bravery lead the way. You'll hear from incredible people who are using their skills and talents to make a difference in their community. And I'll ask them about the moments where they decided to be brave, not perfect. Today, I'm talking with Tulsi Gabbard, a congresswoman from Hawaii's 2nd District and a good friend. When I think of Tulsi, I think of a true public servant. This woman has focused on changing the world and helping her community from the time that she was young. She's an environmental advocate, a politician, and a veteran, and she's just getting started.
1: Aloha, I'm Tulsi Gabbard, and I represent Hawaii's 2nd Congressional District.
0: So, when you were a wee girl, you formed a nonprofit. Called Healthy Hawaii Coalition. I know you're really into wellness and taking care of yourself. You're an amazing surfer. Tell me about what inspired you when you were a teen to to start a nonprofit.
1: Growing up in Hawaii, I'm grateful first of all to have had that opportunity. I learned how to swim first in the ocean. Took my first swimming lessons in the shallows of the water. Oh wow! And was body surfing, bodyboarding, and taught myself how to surf when I was a teenager, spent days and weekends going hiking with friends and so developed a very early appreciation for our environment, our home, you know, which for us as kids was our playground. And so it would make me angry when I would go paddling out in the water and see, you know, empty soda cans floating around or plastic chip bags and wanted to do something about it. And so my friends and I would go out and we'd clean up beaches on the weekends, but I didn't feel like it was enough because, you know, driving down the street, you see someone throw their trash out the car window. And so that inspired me to co-found Healthy Hawaii Coalition. And I wrote a little skit called The Adventures of Water Woman (laughs) and Oily Al. I got a friend of mine who's an artist and she put together a little activity book and Another friend who wrote a grant, and so we went and took this two-day program to elementary school kids across the state. And the whole goal of the program was to do it in a fun way so that we could teach kids from a young age about what happens when you throw that can of soda out the car window. Where does it go? Where does it end up? How do the decisions that we make in our lives affect our home? and our playground, and specifically a focus on water quality, both drinking water as well as our oceans. And so I played the original Water Woman. (laughs) I had my blue surf shorts and a cape and everything. And it was the coolest thing to play Water Woman in this skit And every time Oily Owl was about to do something like change the oil in his car and then dump it down the storm drain, Waterwoman would swoop in and save the day and tell Oily Owl why you (laughs) don't wanna pour your oil down the storm drain. So just seeing the light bulb go off in these kids' eyes as we were doing this, as they really understood and related to what was happening, was such a tremendous feeling in knowing that in some small way, I was making a difference. Yeah. That's yeah. where I got the bug. And I didn't know exactly how things would all work out. But I knew that in some way, that was what I wanted to continue to do, to continue to try to have that kind of positive impact.
0: So how do you get that compassion? You know, did your parents instill that in you? Is that religion? Like, where does that come from? They
1: did just for, you know, I grew up with five kids, three older brothers, and a younger sister, and so our, our household was pretty rough and tumble, but our parents instilled in us from a young age, I think, two really important lessons. One is if you see a problem, don't point your fingers at somebody else or sit around and wait for someone else to solve it. You need to think about what you can actually do to be a part of the solution, and the second thing was that the real measure of success in life is not measured by some materialistic title, salary, or position, or job, or career, or whatever, but really is measured by how you're dedicating your skills in your life to help others.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm a Hindu. You're a Hindu. I yeah. feel like so much of that comes from our religion, it does. right? And you and I know this practiced really to be karma yoga. Yeah. And so people are familiar with the word karma and yeah. familiar with the word yoga, but when you put the two together, that's really what it comes down to is how we live our lives every day dedicated to to helping and serving others yeah. and our planet.
0: It's true. And I, I already see with Sean how much of instilling that in him now, he's so empathetic. Yeah. He's always upset if, you know, somebody's hurt or he's going to go help people. So I think it's I powerful. think part of that is you recognize how interconnected we all are. Yeah. Exactly. And that we
1: have a responsibility to each other.
0: You ran for Hawaii State Legislature when you were 21
1: years old. Tell me about that experience. It was terrifying. <laughs> the motivation to do that really came from this same place that was sparked when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, and constantly kind of asking myself, how can I do more? You know, we were doing these great things and we visited all of these, you know, hundreds and thousands of kids uh, across our state but I felt that I could do more. And so there was an open state house seat where I was living and there were five Democrats who were running and all of us for the first time. People don't believe me when I tell them now, but the prospect of going and knocking on thousands of doors was truly terrifying. I'll never forget the very first day that I was going to go knock on my first door. I had no train. (laughs) Like back then, you know, there's so many wonderful programs like Emerge and these these training retreats and things for women and even young girls who want to get involved with politics. But I had had none of that. And so I was armed with these black and white flyers that I had printed up and a voter registration list. And I sat in my little aqua colored Geo Metro, little <laughs> <laughs> two, two door hatched back on the side of the road. And I just sat there and tried to summon up the courage and said a prayer and, and it took me probably 15 minutes to get out of the car and go knock on that first door. And then to the next one, and then to the next one. Do you wanna like throw up? Every time. <laughs> <laughs> Every time, just, you know, it's like, I don't know who's gonna be on the other side of that door. And the crazy thing was that people were so kind and more often than not offered me a cold glass of water. And, you know, it was was a really wonderful experience to be able to introduce myself and to hear about what was going on in their lives and things that they hoped for their kids or their grandkids or the challenges they were facing. And that's really what kept me motivated and kept me going through that campaign was remembering always that, stop thinking about yourself. It's about these wonderful people who I yeah. you know, was hoping to try to serve.
0: I also feel like a lot of women think you have to be like Bill Clinton and be exactly. this incredible extrovert and you constantly, and it, it's, not, it's not always the case. You, sometimes you're motivated by wanting to make a difference. Stacey Abrams talks about this too, right? That she's an introvert and
1: this was the path. This was the way if she wanted to change, help change people's lives. That's exactly right. I think that the most important lesson is there's no formula that you have to have this training or this degree or this quality, the number one qualifier is, are you motivated to do this out of a desire to serve and improve the lives of the people around you? And if you have that, then yeah, there's gonna be challenges and hardships, but you'll get through them because that purpose is pure.
0: So now you've done this as an environmental advocate, as a state legislator, and also as a veteran. So you had two tours of duty in the Middle East, what made you decide to join the Army, and when did you do that?
1: I joined in early 2003. I was elected to the state legislature in 2002. Really since 9-11, like so many people, I was searching and trying to see and find, you know, how could I do my part and give back. Ultimately, I enlisted in the Hawaii Army National Guard because it allowed me to be able to continue my service to the people in my home state in Hawaii in times of natural disaster and, and need, but also answer the call to duty to my country. I enlisted in 2003, 2004 was when our brigade was activated for a deployment to Iraq. For a lot of our brigade of almost 3,000 soldiers, that was the first time that they had ever been activated to go to a war zone, really since Vietnam. It was a big deal. I was not one of the people who was on that mandatory deployment roster initially and just came to the conclusion very quickly that there was no way I could stay back home while virtually all of my brothers and sisters in uniform were going on an 18-month-long deployment to the other side of the world into a combat zone. And so I called my commander and I said, Send me in. I'm going. (laughs) He's like, no, 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 you're not. Your name's not in the list. The job's filled. You're fine. (laughs) like you don't understand (laughs) i'm going and we had this back and forth for a little while and then ultimately there was a position within our medical unit that was vacant and they didn't have anyone to fill so i went and got retrained in a different job and joined our medical unit on that deployment why'd you want to go so bad
0: what was it inside you
1: knowing how much is sacrificed by our troops and the families that they leave behind I just knew that I needed to be there with them. There was no question in my mind. This wasn't about politics. This wasn't about anything else other than at that moment, at that place in time, I knew that that's where I needed to be of service. And how was your
0: experience? Scary, exhilarating, all the above. What was it like being a woman over there?
1: It changed my life. It changed my perspective on so many things. It, you know, I made some of my very best friends there through that experience, saw such beauty as well as the worst kind of ugliness that you could ever imagine. One of my jobs, I worked as the the brigade surgeon operations specialist, which is a fancy title is to say I was kind of helping track all of the casualties and injuries that occurred every single day. By going through this list, I got a list of, of every American service member who was either injured or worse in the entire country the previous day. And so I would have to go through name by name and look to see, are there any soldiers there from our unit, our brigade And then if there were to make sure that I was reporting on their status, where they were, how they were doing, were they getting the care that they needed? Did they need to get evacuated to Germany or would they be able to get treatment there in country? And just going through that every single day and and thinking about my own family at home and the families of each of these service members was such a powerful thing uh, and something that I will never forget because it represents who pays the price for war. And this whole experience was really the major motivator for me to run for Congress because I came back from that first deployment and a lot of my former colleagues in the State House said, okay, great, you're home, you can run for your old seat, get back to life. And I just couldn't because everything had changed for me because Congress constitutionally has the responsibility to decide whether or not to declare war. Now we can have a conversation about how Congress has abdicated that responsibility, unfortunately for far too long to the executive branch. But the reality is Congress has that responsibility. And as we saw in Iraq, as we saw in Libya, as we see in Syria, Congress continues to authorize funds for and support this addiction to regime change wars that have not only cost our country so much in human lives, and in resources, and treasure, but also the impact that our interventions have had on the people in these countries, the millions of Iraqis who were killed, the people in Libya whose lives were completely ruined. Post our leading the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya, you now have women and children being sold in slave markets openly. Things that were were not an issue there before have now come about in this failed country. You have ISIS and Al-Qaeda growing stronger in places like Libya and so on and so forth. You see the same thing in Syria. So being in a position in Washington to be able to speak out and fight against these continued interventions that are counterproductive for us and counterproductive for the people in these countries where we often intervene under this guise of humanitarianism, which it turns out it's anything but, Yeah. this was what motivated me to run for Congress.
0: So when you run for Congress, you are the upstart. Nobody thinks that you can win. To say the least. (laughs) (laughs) I remember because we met then. That's right. Tell me about the
1: race. So I worked in Washington as a legislative aide for one of our greatest, our country's greatest senators, Senator Akaka from Hawaii. He was the kindest person I knew. He embodied the aloha spirit. He never had a single bad thing to say about anyone. The aloha spirit is love, it's care, and it's compassion. And he worked with people on both sides of the aisle. He never had anything unkind to say about even his worst detractors. He had a tough re-election campaign, which was when I got to know him, I volunteered on his campaign. And everyone was telling him, you got to go negative if you want to win. You got to go negative. He refused to even consider it. So I was working for him. He was the chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee and really inspired and served as a, a mentor for me. He left office. That created this kind of trickle effect where it turned out there was an open congressional seat in Hawaii. And I knew that this was my shot. This was my chance to be able to take those experiences that I had had during my deployments to the Middle East and be a voice for my fellow veterans and for my fellow service members and for our country and advocate to bring about an end to these continuous wars of choice. The political folks in Hawaii who I spoke to, almost to a person, said, Tulsi, we like you, but there's no way you can win. Yeah. Not your turn yet. Not your time. (laughs) Maybe wait 10 or 15 or 20 years and then think about it then. I smiled and I said, thank you. Aloha to you. And (laughs) (laughs) continued on my way. It was a tough campaign. You know, there were a few people running. The front runner was someone who was a former mayor who had just run for governor, who had 100% name recognition. When I started, I think my name recognition was at about 3% in the district, which spans every island across the state. And so to say the odds were tough, I think puts it very kindly.
0: So how'd you do it? How do you think you won?
1: I focused on who matters most, and that's the people. I tuned out the so-called political powers that be, the people who thought they really did hold the power and in, in deciding this election. You know, my opponent, he, he got all the big endorsements. He got all those things that when you read how to run a campaign that you really want to have, Yeah. But I focused on the people yeah. and spent a lot of time going out and spending time with them, listening to them yeah. and telling them, hey, I'm applying for a job from each and every one of you. I hope every woman who's listening who wants to run for office, is here, because this is the
0: point that I learned. In both my races, I spent all my time chasing people who were never going to support me That's it? ever. Mm-hmm. And then I never, ever got to actually meet real voters and so it's this game right where you think and and they play it well like maybe let me think about it blah 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 and you gotta they just want you to kiss the ring yeah and you really have no choice at all i mean no chance at all and i think you know you're an example of that i think alexandra Ocasio's example of that right it's like you just gotta hit Mm -hmm. the doors
1: our friend beto o'rourke is doing it right now in texas exactly going directly to the people and i ended up winning the election with on over i think 22 percent margin of victory. And in the few days after that election, I was meeting with a small group of people and kind of an older Japanese American gentleman came and knocked on the door. And so he's like, Oh, I'm here to see Tulsi. And so I stepped outside and I said, Hi, how are you? And one thing that I had done as we were trying to reach out to people both in person and through social media was that if you were my 1000th like on Facebook, I would send you a message saying, (laughs) Hey, thanks Reshma for being my 1000th like and 2000 and 3000 and so on. And so when I went out and I met this guy, and I said, Hi, how are you? What's your name? And he pulled out his business card, where he had written a 2000 on there. And he said, I'm 2000. And he's retired. He's you know, he's he's not like your typical social media like millennial. Right. But he had so much pride and I'd like I you were my two (laughs) thousandth like on Facebook and he was so proud that I recognized that. It's amazing and that he had done his small part in us winning this victory that was the people's victory. Yeah. It was so special. It's
0: amazing. Wow. So I always say right now that we're living in hard times. You know, I feel like the entire country is anxious and, you know, depressed, you know, especially with the work that I do. Like I always say, it's like our, our leaders are behaving like children and our children are behaving like leaders. Well, How do you feel about what's going on?
1: The level of ultra partisan divisiveness is really tearing our country apart. The ones who lose out in this are the people. And so when you look at what's happening in Washington, and this is why I get out of Washington as often as possible, both to get back to my district and get out into different communities in the country, is because there's such a huge disconnect. And unfortunately, you see two parties who are too busy battling with each other to try to get the political win. And the effect on the people is too often lost in that whole process. The conversations that you hear in diners and Local restaurants and dinner tables in the country are completely different than those that you hear in the rooms in Washington. And I think that's what's so heartbreaking is there's so much at stake and there's so many challenges, real challenges that we have and that have existed for a very long time. Challenges that didn't just start in 2016 but actually existed before that require us to work together, Democrats and Republicans and independents, to bring all of our ideas to the table and find, okay, how do we come up with the best solution that we can pass and begin to make progress?
0: I hope you bring that sensibility to Washington. You care a lot and you talk a lot about wellness. A lot of it probably has to do with coming from the Aloha state. Yes. You know, As activists, as leaders, it's like we're the worst at taking care of ourselves, right? (laughs) We're like the most run down. I know I am like currently Mm -hmm. on like
1: five hours of sleep two days in a row.
0: What do you do for self care?
1: I have my own spiritual practice of bhakti yoga and meditation. Do you do that every day? Yes. Sometimes my schedule changes on a daily basis, especially when I'm traveling. And so sometimes I'm able to spend more time doing that at home and starting off my day. Sometimes it's on the go and I take my, my meditation beads with me or it's on the plane or whatever. But it's so important to make that time. You and I were just talking about surfing. Just getting in the ocean is so there cleansing no- and waves in DC, refreshing. Right? <laughs> There are the wrong kinds of waves in DC. <laughs> a friend of mine actually takes a stand-up paddleboard farther up in the potomac and does stand up paddleboarding on the rapids. Oh wow. Which I haven't tried yet. I think the water's cleaner up there. <laughs> but it, it looks challenging.
0: I don't know what it is about surfing. You're right. It's so magical. It is. And so wonderful. And I think the entire process too, like I'm a new learner and I thought I had learned and then I went out two weeks ago and I just could not get up on the board. And of course, like my husband, Nahal was like, you know, just doing his thing. And I was like, <laughs> you know, he was so proud of himself and I was so like, ah. We
1: all have those days, honestly. My husband and I surf all the time together and sometimes one of us just has a, you just have a horrible time and nothing is going right. Yeah. And it gets frustrating. But it's those times when we remind each other, whoever's having a bad day out <laughs> in the water, just it's a beautiful day. You're out in the ocean you know we're yeah. together it's peaceful it's wonderful
0: and it's like I'm grateful to learn like yeah. I actually enjoy the feeling of feeling sick before I'm like on my way to the beach because yeah. I'm so nervous <laughs> and I just don't want to do it right but then I'm excited yep. to get there and then even when it doesn't work out I'm like I can't wait to try again yeah and I think I just feel very blessed yeah you know to feel that way yeah. so we always like to end with what's your brave not perfect moment mm. I feel like in talking to you you've always been brave no. so was there ever a time <laughs> where you were just really marred by perfectionism and it was preventing you from living your truest life or your best life and you just said, you know what, I'm going to do what I
1: want to do or what I think is right. I think there are probably a lot of practical examples of that where there's not enough time in the day to be able to do all of the things that I really, really want to be able to do and so to be able to focus on um, the things that I can do and the, the change that I can effect, and accepting that. And I think bo- that that applies both through my service in the military as well as my, my service in the political world. Uh, and having that kind of focus, I think, is critical to actually being able to be effective.
0: I love that. Well, thank you, Tulsi. Thank you. so great seeing you. Great
1: to talk to you.
0: I love this conversation with Tulsi. She's so focused on thinking about the progress that we can make in Congress, what we can do for women, and also thinking about the importance of kind of self-care and mental health, which are two things I think that a lot of Americans are focused on and really struggling with. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at podcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. Until next time, this has been an episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani.